Hello and welcome to the WSUM NewsHour for the week of February 3rd. I'm Will Keneally. And I'm Sam Beisman. Over the next hour, we will bring you a roundup of this week's news and dive deeper into important issues. It's just like our nightly news roundup, but with longer time for more reporting. And this week, we start off with a Pizza Hut robbery. For two hours on Tuesday, Madison was gripped by the saga of a Pizza Hut robber. Here's Alexander Kaufman. The students, faculty, and staff of UW-Madison were alerted just after noon today of an armed man suspected of holding up a Pizza Hut on Park Street. The man then absconded to the University of Wisconsin-Madison Arboretum, where he remained until a combined effort from the UWPD, Madison PD, and Dane County Sheriff's Office finally apprehended him at approximately 2.30 p.m. The man, who remains unnamed, was carrying a revolver and had been spotted earlier near St. Mary's Hospital, according to Madison police spokesman Joel Despain. This is the 21st robbery of the year so far in Madison. For WSUM News, I'm Alexander Kaufman. Thanks for that, Alexander. A Madison suburb filed a lawsuit against a cable company over a natural gas explosion. WSUM reporter Jennifer Huang has the story. A destructive natural gas explosion took place in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin this past summer. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the city has sued VC Tech and Bear Communications, companies associated with the VC Tech worker who planted a fiber optic cable, unfortunately triggering an explosion that killed firefighter Corey Barr. The lawsuit specifies that VC Tech and Bear Communications failed to detect the dangerous gas line. What's more is that Bear Communications did not check for the licensing of VC Tech while Indianapolis-based USIC locating services failed to make note of underground services. The wife of the deceased firefighter has also filed a lawsuit against these corporations in addition to We Energies in December. For WSEM News, I'm Jennifer Huang. And in other news, Mitch McConnell has spoken out in opposition of a House bill to increase voter turnout, calling it a power grab by Democrats. Here's Alexander Kaufman with the story. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell responded today from the Senate floor to a bill being considered in the House of Representatives. H.R. 1, titled the For the People Act of 2019, would attempt to overhaul the nation's election system, streamlining the process and increasing voter turnout and security. The proposals include reducing voter suppression by allowing same-day registration and circumventing voter ID laws, reducing gerrymandering and declaring Election Day a federal holiday. McConnell had this to say about the measure. This is the Democrat plan to restore democracy? A power grab that's smelling more and more like exactly what it is. Although it is widely recognized that increasing voter turnout is likely to hurt the Republican Party, that fact is not typically mentioned by GOP politicians. In characterizing the bill as a power grab, McConnell has faced significant backlash on social media from both other lawmakers and ordinary citizens. For WSUM News, I'm Alexander Kaufman. Thanks for that, Alexander. The city of Madison kicked off Black History Month this Friday with proclamations from Governor Tony Evers, members of the Legislative Black Caucus, the University of Wisconsin, and others. According to Channel 3000, Evers and Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is Wisconsin's first black lieutenant governor, delivered remarks at both the state capitol and the America's Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee. 
According to the Cap Times, Evers spoke on the importance of the opportunity to, quote, celebrate and remember the incredible contributions, end quote, of people of color in Wisconsin across its history, while Barnes highlighted the ongoing racial disparities within wealth, education, and other fields in Wisconsin, stating, quote, when you look at a state like Wisconsin, we have a lot to be proud of, but we also have a lot of work to do, end quote. UW-Madison issued a press release commemorating the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Black Student Strike, along with a list of upcoming celebratory events on campus. The full statement can be viewed on the university's website. And across the pond, Brexit continues to dominate the conversation, and the UK Parliament wants a piece of the action. Alexander Kaufman has the story. The saga of the British exit from the European Union, variously called Brexit and the worst ever own goal by a modern Western democracy, continued today as Prime Minister Theresa May narrowly avoided being usurped by her own parliament. An amendment that would have given the parliament authority to instruct the Prime Minister to delay Brexit and prevent a crash out of the Union without a deal was defeated by the narrowest of margins. May's original separation plan was soundly rejected by Parliament in December, and the alternative plan she has presented appears very similar in scope. Debate remains over the Irish backstop that would allow free flow of goods and people between Ireland and Northern Ireland. One proposed solution is to place a customs check across the North Sea, but this is an unacceptable measure to the Democratic Unionist Party, which forms a small part of the coalition government that keeps May in power. With no clear consensus among lawmakers on an alternative plan, May's hope is that they will ultimately choose her plan rather than continue with a no-deal Brexit. The clock continues to tick down to March 29th, when Britain is set to leave the EU with or without a deal. For WSUM News, I'm Alexander Kaufman. Thanks again, Alexander. The struggle for power in Venezuela continued this week. Alexander Kaufman has the story. In Washington's most overt attempt in decades to topple a Latin American leader, The U.S. government today handed control of Venezuelan assets and bank accounts held in the U.S. to opposition leader Juan Guaido. This includes several refineries and Citgo, the American arm of the state-run oil company PDVSA. In response, the attorney general for the sitting president, Nicolas Maduro, opened an investigation into Guaido, freezing his assets and forcing him to remain in the country. Maduro has been accused of heavily rigging the recent election that secured his second term. The loss of 36% of Venezuelan government revenues, which come from half a million barrels a day of oil exported to the U.S., will severely restrict Maduro's ability to spend money. Some worry that the cost will be passed on to ordinary people by increasing inflation and reducing access to food, fuel, and critical government services. For WSUM News, I'm Alexander Kaufman. Thanks for that reporting, Alexander. And now, as this story has continued to develop since our original reporting on it, we have our reporter Alexander Kaufman live in studio to discuss some breaking news on the situation. Alex, thanks for being here. Thank you. So, I gotta ask you, what's happened so far to upset the establishment? So yesterday, there was a huge rally in the capital in Caracas, and 800,000 protesters showed up, and notably, there was no military crackdown. Um, At least 40 people have been killed in clashes between the military and protesters uh, since this particular uprising began. But uh, it's it's significant that the military hasn't attacked anyone. Um, In addition, the uh, current president, Nicolas Maduro, had a rally, but they analysts have suggested that far fewer people than expected turned out to support him. So he is losing support. 
And um, and a military official, Division General Francisco Esteban Yanez Rodriguez, says that about 90% of the military don't support Maduro. So if more of the top brass defect, we could really see a change in power very soon. Hmm. Well, it definitely does sound like this is a legitimate challenge to Maduro's power and legitimacy. So what's ultimately going to decide who gets power in Venezuela? So in Venezuela, like in many countries, uh, it's ultimately going to be the military. If the military sides with Maduro then uh, you're going to wind up with a change in power, you know. And and um, Guaido, the, the challenger, has been, uh, he has appointed himself interim president. He's been recognized by the U.S., the European Parliament. He's been appointing ambassadors. So it really looks like he's getting ready to make a real change. Alex, thank you for your reporting on this topic. Thank you. We will continue to issue updates as this important story continues to develop. So keep it tuned to WSUM. We're going to take it to a quick break, but stay tuned. When we come back, we'll have Dr. Martin in the studio to discuss the weather last week. Hey, WSUM retweeted my tweet. Wait, how? And my Instagram story got featured on their Instagram story. That is so cool. How can I get featured? Hey, fellow WSUM listeners. Did you know if you tag WSUM in your tweet, you might just get a retweet? Also, did you know you'll get a chance to be featured on our Instagram story if you tag us in your story? Go follow us on Twitter at WSUM and Instagram at WSUM91.7 for updates on station events, ticket giveaways, our latest merch, and more. Tag us in your post for a chance to get a retweet or featured. Wow, I'll give that a follow. WSUM, hashtag audibly innovative. Welcome back. You are listening to the News Hour on WSUM 91.7 FM, Madison, Wisconsin. Last week, some of the coldest temperatures in a generation gripped Wisconsin and the rest of the Midwest. Windchill temperatures were within the negative 50s, prompting Governor Tony Evers to issue a state of emergency, schools across the state, including UW-Madison, to cancel class, and the Postal Service to suspend their service. With us now live is Dr. Jonathan Martin, a Ph.D. in atmospheric sciences and professor at UW-Madison, to discuss the science behind these weather patterns and their impact. Dr. Martin, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. It's a real pleasure. Glad to hear it. So, Dr. Martin, for our listeners, could you explain your areas of study and research interests? Yeah, my, my areas, I grew up in New England, so uh, my areas have always been a great interest in winter storms and how they work. And, um, and then now, increasingly, how they link to a broader climate system and the larger-scale circulation of the whole hemisphere. So that's really, in a nutshell, the kind of things that I'm interested in. I want to understand how the storms produce cloudiness and how the clouds then produce precipitation, usually in the form of snow, and then what happens in their wake. Excellent. Well, seems like you're just the right guy for, the, for this kind of a job, talking <laughs> about the winter storms. So we all suffered through those extreme temperatures last week, but... Why did it get so cold? What are the conditions or processes necessary for temperatures to drop so low? It's a good question. It's the question that makes me excited every time it does get that cold, even from when I was a little boy. You know, how can you get the air to get so cold? Well, the, the number one factor in doing that is to starve it of sunlight. So, you know, we're not starved of sunlight, even in the middle of the depths of the winter here in Wisconsin. So you know for a fact that that air has to come from the high latitudes of the northern hemisphere. And it came almost from right over the North Pole. So it sits there for sometimes weeks, just cooling and never, being rec never receiving any other heat. And so it gets colder and colder and colder. And then some 
portion uh, or some disturbance in the circulation forces it to move southward. And occasionally that southward trajectory puts it right over us in a very short period of time. And that's actually what happened this last week. So is there anything then unique to Wisconsin's geography that sparks such low temperatures? Is that just the positioning of it that puts us in the path of this moving air? I think it's more the latter. It's not so much what the geography is in the state itself. In, you know, locally, whether it's minus 35 for the low temperature and the coldest uh, portion of that cold air outbreak or minus 25 or something like that, it's a pretty big difference. That will have something to do with really local geography. If you're in a river valley or something, you might get 10 degrees colder than your neighbor on the top of a hill. But broadly speaking, it's the geography of North America, central North America, all the way from the archipelago in Canada all the way down here to the central United States that matters. It's snow-covered at this time of year. There's no chance at all that that air is going to be modified by contact with a warmer ground. And if it makes rapid progress southward, it doesn't change its temperature at all. So we actually had Arctic air sitting right over us on Tuesday through Thursday. Well, speaking of the Arctic and speaking of the poles, last week in a lot of media coverage of these temperatures, it was referred to as a quote-unquote polar vortex. Mm. So what is a polar vortex and what does that term actually mean? That's a great question, Sam. That word has been appropriated and then subsequently sensationalized by the media since our very cold winter of 2013-14, I think it was. We had a couple of uh, episodes like this. The word polar vortex actually refers to a circulation feature that's characteristic of every single cold season in the northern hemisphere that resides in the lower stratosphere, about 15 or so miles above the ground. So when it gets when the sun goes down at the North Pole, it starts to, of course, cool off there more rapidly than anywhere else to the south, and that produces a really strong west-to-east wind, which, if you look at it from above the top of the globe, is going to be a vortex around the North Pole. And that's the polar vortex is in the lower stratosphere. That thing is susceptible to being pushed off the pole occasionally by anomalies in the circulation, and even sometimes in more dramatic anomalies, being split in half. So that instead of a single vortex that rotates around the pole at that altitude, it'll split into two, and then those two lobes may move into different locations of the hemisphere. When such a lobe moves over northern and central North America, that sets us up for a particularly cold event. Now, it isn't just the stratospheric polar vortex that matters. It's other things in the underlying troposphere that have to also phase correctly to really um, bring us the most ferocious uh, pieces of the cold air that's been cooled at high latitude. So uh, the whole notion that it's just one vortex structure that slides over the Great Lakes region and made us super cold is way too simple and robs nature of its grandeur, in my opinion. And so the full explanation is much more interesting. I see, for sure. But one way or another, a much more unpleasant thing to come from the North Pole than Santa, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. That is correct. No doubt about that. So then, inevitable and important in any discussion of an extreme weather event is the question of climate change. Mm -hmm. So did the ongoing effects of climate change have any impacts on last week's weather? It would be imprudent to suggest that there's no connection at all. And I know that strikes people as almost implausibly... um, Uh, you know, um, almost incoherent and uh, uh, unintuitive to to an extent we almost don't believe it. But what happens when the planet's warming gradually as it is, is that the circulation of the atmosphere and and characteristics of the circulation are also changing, perhaps just as subtly. One of those elements is the, the tropospheric jet stream, the one that's closer to the ground, it's more five or six miles above the ground, and we deal with that when we fly an aircraft. We're in either being blown along by it or trying to fly into it. 
that feature is encroaching upon the pole. So it's moving more and more northward, ever so slowly. And it also has, and it characteristically has for the whole you know, history of the planet, it has waves in it. So there are undulations north and south in that jet stream. And the thing that's interesting is, and I'm thinking about this now, is if the jet stream is encroaching on the pole, along with its waviness, then it's more likely to pull down some of those ex- exceptionally cold little air masses that have been developed underneath uh, some of these vortex structures in the troposphere at high latitude. And I think that's a great example is what we just had. It was a very small-scale feature. You notice there was no news about um, citrus loss in Florida. There was no news about a serious cold outbreak in the southern states. That's not always true when we get a cold air outbreak. Sometimes, like in January 1985, it was cold everywhere from, from the Canadian border all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So sometimes these things are of enormous scale. And it strikes me that they're an entirely different animal than the one that we just got, which was very much more regional. And in fact, the 70-degree warm-up on its other side is a function of how small-scale it was. I suppose. So speaking of which, what can we make of that huge temperature swing that we just faced? Is that also part of the impacts of climate change on this and the weather pattern in general? Or I would say that, um, just to clarify my last point, and maybe I kind of went off a little bit on a tangent there and didn't really answer your question, I think... The changing climate is a factor in the delivery of some of these cold events. But to to completely attribute what happened last week just to climate change, as sometimes the stories get bent that way and and there's people in the field who might want to push it that way, that's irresponsible and inaccurate. Um, Equally true would be to say that this rapid warm-up is purely and and solitarily, uh, you know, a function of climate change. The atmosphere has a broad amount of variability in it. Almost like Shakespeare says, there's more to your to the world than in your philosophy. It's there's more in the atmosphere than we sometimes give it credit for, and it doesn't need to have a giant climate perturbation to deliver some of these funny things. They may be exacerbated by it, but this dramatic warm up is one of, is almost characteristic, although extreme this time, to um, the aftermath of one of these cold air outbreaks because we were brought to such anomalously low temperatures, but just then just the approach back to normal gives you 50 degrees of warming. Sounds good. And then one thing that I would like to ask, we're the news media, we're mm-hmm. responsible for covering events like this, with some of the inaccuracies of maybe referring to these things as a polar vortex, how would you like the news media to better cover events like this so That's it could a, be maybe more accurate or more complete or comprehensive coverage? That's an excellent question. I think you hit it with the last two adjectives at the end. It's very difficult. And first of all, I really appreciate that the media is interested in this. I think people are generally very interested in the weather and in the climate by proxy. And so the media getting involved in, in, in entertaining uh, expert commentary on it is something that's great for our, for our civilization, for our democracy. Um, it's it's important to remember, though, that what we know about it now um, has taken a hundred or more years to really learn. And so to try and distill all of that in a coherent way to uh, um, people in the public who are genuinely interested but don't have the background knowledge and the background training to absorb all of the vocabulary even and then some of the scientific ideas that come from that vocabulary is a really difficult task for the combination of the media and active uh, research scientists. So I, I think opportunities like this one are exactly what we need to do is to, and, and to try to make it more comprehensive and ask serious, uh, solid questions uh, that don't have a sensational edge to them, and then allow uh, a person like me to struggle to explain it as best I can in a short amount of time. That's exactly what I think is the key to the puzzle here. Well, thank you for struggling as yeah, you did. It certainly pleasure. didn't seem to me like there was any struggle going on.
Well, thank you very much. I oh, appreciate no it. Thank you so much for your time, and best of luck in your research and the rest of your work. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Keep it tuned to WSUM. We're going to take it to a quick break, but we'll be back with the news hour after a few short messages. Tired of all the fake news out there? We've got you covered. WSUM News, every weekday at the top of the hour at 5 and 6 p.m. Put together by our dedicated news team, get the latest local, national, and world news with sports and up-to-date weather. WSUM News, transmitting over the airwaves on 91.7 FM and streaming live at WSUM.org. And welcome back. You're tuned into the news hour here on WSUM 91.7 FM Madison. So, so we go now to Foxconn News. The technology company Foxconn announced this week that they would be reevaluating production of the LCD screens in Wisconsin. The company says the high cost of production in the United States does not make it feasible to produce LCD screens in the southeastern portion of the state. This initial, this initial reporting in Reuters suggested a shift in the company from hiring manufacturing jobs to, voca- to focusing more on engineering jobs in the state. Foxconn did, however, reaffirm their commitment to creating 13,000 jobs in the area. In a statement on Wednesday, the company said, quote, We are also examining ways for Wisconsin's knowledge workers to promote research and development in advanced industrial internet technologies and produce high-tech applications and solutions. Despite the company's commitment to creating the jobs on schedule, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported in January that Foxconn had missed a hiring target for 2018. Politicians were quick to weigh in on what had become a political football over the 2017 and 2018 election cycle. State Republicans blamed Tony Evers for the company's announcement Wednesday, releasing a statement reading, quote, The company is reacting to a wave of economic uncertainty that the new governor has brought with his administration. Governor Evers weighed in on the news as well. Our goal as a state is to make sure that uh, we continually monitor the progress uh, and the thinking that goes on uh, and to make sure that taxpayers are protected, the environment's protected, and that uh, there's as much transparency as possible in this process. In response, the business community was hopeful. President of the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce, Tim Sheehy, sat down with Mike Goucher on WISN's Upfront. Well, what they've said clearly is that market forces have intervened since they made the announcement two years ago. But what's important is they've, they, they're looking at what they're going to manufacture here, not if they're going to manufacture. Um, and the recent announcement now that they're going to commit to build a Gen 6 plant, which is basically smaller screens for things like autonomous vehicles here in Racine is really good news and puts a stake in manufacturing in addition to what they're going to do in rapid prototyping and R&D and other types of investments that they'll make on that Racine campus. She adds that taxpayers should not worry about the use of their tax dollars in the deal. So um, I understand the angst about a changing story, Mm -hmm. but what we've got is a solid contract that only pays for jobs and capital investment that are made. As of the weekend, the company says they plan to build a smaller Fab 6 facility and still place a focus on research and development in the state. We turn now to reporters who join us live in studio, Kai Brito and Martin Rocketsoli. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So what are you guys seeing with the Foxconn deal as it stands? Well, uh, I think one thing um, 
uh, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, the initial projections were actually for a massive campus that, yes, had manufacturing, but also had um, also living quarters and research uh, places. So the initial projections for the plant did actually include um, research operations. Um, also, historically, it doesn't it's not that surprising that they would say that the um, LCD screens are too expensive to manufacture here. Um, there's actually a history of uh, American-made televisions that actually stopped being made in America because the Japanese actually outcompeted them. So, if so, a lot of the what they need to produce them and a lot of the project products they're producing them for are in Japan and in other areas and in other areas of the world certainly. Um, so you, you mentioned that briefly it would be a political football. I think it's important to understand uh, why. There have been, it's been a controversial deal for a long time. Uh, back when the plant was announced in Racine, um, the, the Walker administration uh, used eminent domain in order to seize uh, entire neighborhoods for what was essentially a privately owned enterprise. Now, there's a um, court case called Kilo versus New London. Um, whose primary holding held that, and I quote here, economic benefits are a permissible form of public use that justifies the government in seizing property from private citizens. So some more libertarian-leaning people accused them of essentially using the government to take land from private citizens for a for. Uh, a project that could benefit the public but was not actually a public's work project. There were environmental concerns as well that my um, co-commentator, Kai Brito, will, also, will talk about with uh, in time. But the big thing during the election was actually how, many, how much tax incentives Foxconn got. Now, Foxconn at the time was the biggest was the biggest um investment by a company in Wisconsin history period and i believe to date is still the biggest investment in the united states by a foreign company and in order to get that for for Wisconsin um walker essentially promised them 2.8 uh 2.85 billion dollars in tax incentives according to the Racine Journal Times uh, and that number has since ballooned up to 4.8 billion. I've seen 4 billion estimates, but certainly it's gotten much larger. And I think that also includes local um, tax incentives as well. Correct. Yes. Um, and a, a small amount of it, according to subsidy tractor, is some federal. But the the federal uh, tax incentives are a very small percentage of what of the tax incentives they got. Um, so the big thing that a lot of the Democrats uh, said was that just we're giving the money away for free. I believe I have a quote from Evers here. Uh, With Foxconn, it's been asterisk after asterisk, and, and their end of the bargain seems to change by the day. It's a lousy deal, and we're going to have to hold Foxconn's feet to the fire going forward, which is in reference to him wanting to set uh, much stricter goals for Wisconsin in order to get for Foxconn in order for them to actually receive the tax incentives. Um, some of the... Other candidates went even further. I believe it was Matt Flynn wanted to uh, abolish Foxconn, just pull out of the deal entirely. So this, um, the amount of money, and I, uh, estimates show that we, it would take 25 years for Wisconsin to recoup the losses, was a big sticking point in the Democratic primary. Um, 
uh, Kai, would you like to talk about the environmental impacts? Yeah, but first I actually, uh, so there's a point about eminent domain. I thought that was really interesting. You know, there there are currently some households in the racing area that are, are involved in lawsuits or interested in pursuing lawsuits over over that uh, use of eminent domain. So they, they say that it wasn't a legal application of eminent domain and that their houses should not have to be, uh, you know, t- that land that they, they fall on should not have to be taken. I mean, obviously, when you um, enforce eminent domain, you do ha- you get to uh, what's called compensate people for the property that is there. So there, there's like you know monetary compensation for that. But people obviously you know, don't want to have to move out of their homes. And people are making arguments like, oh, uh, you know, like we made these homes and we renovated them, and you're, you know the market value is not exactly it. So you're running into all these issues of you know what's the real worth of the land that you're on and the house that's on it, and it's hard to quantify that. But more interesting, it's like whether or not this land should even be taken because apparently from that court case we see that you know. Ec- economic benefits are an acceptable use of um the public good i think it was is referenced at or what's the um permissible form of public use public use yeah so that's that's kind of the interesting argument there and a lot of what gave them credence to even do that is this description as a blighted land so in 2005 wisconsin act 233 allows uh the the classification of land to be declared as like blighted landscape if it falls under certain like public health uses or other issues that are uh, allow for this land to be i don't know taken by eminent domain so they're using this little land designation and designating it as a blighted land so that they give themselves more um, I guess permission or they build a stronger case for them to be able to use this eminent domain um, where I'm at now I'm not sure if they've like taken all the land that they have for the um, campus because I'm pretty sure like a majority of the land has been acquired but not every single part of it it's mainly for the intersection of the roads i believe is i think that correct? it's upwards of in the 90s right i think 98 percent um was last summer and they're exactly um, right, trying to buy up some land closer to the roads mm-hmm, yeah because basically they want to make like an like a big interstate so like you know parking lot campus to allow people to uh transit between the two areas so that seems to be like the the stalemate there but it's pretty much built for what we see uh, the purposes that they have there but there's small court cases there that people are interested in uh, stalling for a while so who knows how long that'll, that'll yeah take. um I, I think it is i believe that there was that um a foxconn court case actually went to the state supreme court and mm. in a 4-3 decision i believe the state supreme court said that uh, well decided that um fo- that that the state was it was okay for the state to go ahead and seize that land mm. Okay, so maybe that's the end of that we'll be seeing there. But um, we came here to talk about environmental issues. So there, there's two big ones, I think, that are interesting. I think it's the um, these large uh, waivers of some environmental, uh, I guess, like rulings that you would have to follow if you're a big company that wants to develop in an area. So there's that about wetlands. And the other thing is about the Great Lakes Compact and how much water usage. So Martin, you mentioned that, you know, LCD manufacturing plant, you know, like, you know, is it is it even useful anymore? Well, I don't know whether or not it's useful. We definitely know that it's a geographically a great place to build it because of all the water that's available there. So I'll be getting into that. So uh, starting with the uh, 
uh, wetlands. Um, there's a broad exemption for environmental regulations allowed for Wisconsin wetlands permits, according to the DNR website, as required by law prior to construction and operation of a new facility. Uh, facilities such as Foxconn must work with the state on reviewing appropriate permits and follow state and federal standards, um, including air and water quality and solid hazardous waste regulations. That's kind of all business as normal, and that's what you would normally do if you were building um, any sort of facility in an area for a corporation. But in uh, Wisconsin Act 58, uh, Governor Scott Walker allowed for those exemptions to be granted on, on obtaining a federal, uh, or sorry, state wetlands permits. So they are not required to replace those wetlands that they're like up upending in that area so i mean while they may do it as part of whatever their uh environmental plan is um, they are not required to do so because of these exemptions being granted and so what are these wetlands that we're talking about like what do they do well uh wetlands just do a lot of uh like water drainage like you know like think about like when when things rain a lot like you know all the water's like you know pulling out of the floods so making sure that like floods don't happen it's a great place for that it's also um these wetlands allow a lot of habitat for creatures that uh or like species that we might not normally see like the, these are the environmental indicators that allow for I don't know, landscapes to recharge. A lot of it's just water table stuff. So in the area that Foxconn wanted to build on, a lot of it was like lake bed and wetlands. So people are wondering, well, is this water drainage going to have an effect on people like down the road? Where's all the water going to concentrate in and, you know, store itself and, you know, recharge that carbon? So it's, it's a lot of like earth science cycles going on there. Um, beyond that, I can't really say much more, but um, that's like the general big picture that I, the understanding I have of that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, with that, so um, environmental groups like uh, Wisconsin Wetlands Association, Sierra Club, and Wisconsin Wildlife Federation oppose that. And, and the biggest reason there is because they don't want to set a precedent for other people to, you know, if, if another corporation wants to, um, you know, build a facility somewhere else in the state, they don't want to be like, oh, now it becomes a norm for, you know, wetland exemptions to be permitted uh, for these corporations. Because, like, what's the point? Or I guess what they're saying is, what's the point of having these these um, like wetlands permits being granted by the DNR at all if you're just going to be giving exemptions? So they're just wondering, where's the line that you draw there? Which I think is a, a fair uh, thing to wonder about. Although, you know, there is the argument that some people are making that this is, you know, a, a large, historic, international deal with a foreign company. So maybe that's why. But uh, I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? And uh, do we have time to get into the compacts? Okay. Yeah, definitely. Okay, great. So, uh, what's going on here with the compacts? This is this is the Great Lakes. Uh, this compacts? is the Great Lakes compact, and that has a like really interesting role to play in the development of how this deal went down and and why certain things um, may have happened here in Wisconsin. So some of this is. Um, just interesting why certain things happen here. So uh, I'm going to get into a little bit of like what the Great Lakes Compact is and, you know, what certain definitions of who's allowed to get water from where and where Foxconn fits into all of this. So uh, the Great Lakes Compact is kind of like a Bush Jr. era policy. So George W. Bush um, is signed in 2008, and it's an interstate agreement between all the states surrounding the Great Lakes. That's Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And there's some like advisory roles from Ontario and Quebec, the, the Canadian provinces, which aren't really like legally allowed to comment on what the United States does with our water. But, you know, they they're given a seat at the table to make recommendations. 
Um, and the Great Lakes uh, matter a lot to this region because it holds about a fifth of the world's freshwater resources. So that, that's a significant portion, and it's a really big portion for what exists in the United States. So you can see why it's like a great natural resource for the area if we're going to have access to this much freshwater, and why we're getting or where we're getting all um, all of our uh, drinking water as we're sourcing some of that. Um, so this this compact was created as a means to like, you know sustainably manage this resource for the future because they don't want to you know run out of water a resource necessary for human beings to live. So I mean I think that was like one like an environmental champion thing that people said like oh it's great that we're doing this. But here's where it gets interesting. So we know that the manufacturing process for LCD screens it requires a lot of water and as Gizmodo reported um, it would require about 7 million gallons of water from the region per day. And um, that's actually like it, 7 million sounds like a lot, but it's actually not a lot, um, like percentage wise, of how much you'd be increasing the amount of water being taken from the Great Lakes every day. Because, you know, a lot of companies, like especially beer companies, like why are so many exist in Milwaukee and like Chicago? Like, you know, they use a lot of water, and a lot of other people use water from the Great Lakes. You know, you, you take it, you refresh it, and you recharge it. But so what you're saying, like once they're done manufacturing it, they treat it so that it can go back into right, the environment, right? Right, that's the idea there. So you're not, you know, it's a sustainable resource there. So now you're starting to get the idea of like why even geographically a manufacturing, an LCD manufacturing company would want to be in this area. It's because of that access to the fresh water. Um, <clears throat> And that's due to the Great Lakes Compact. And the reason why um, they're even able to go there, in back in like 20, uh, you know, I don't know the year it started, but in 2016, like a, a, a case was decided whether or not Waukesha County would be able to be allowed right. a water diversion, right? So there's a whole concept of like, you know, where the Great Lakes Basin is and um, some of the way... Or sorry, um, the Great Lakes Basin is kind of it doesn't follow like county lines. It kind of just like pops in and out, and you know it, that's that's just like geology there for you. So there's this lake basin, and counties kind of fall like within it or out it. And Waukesha, the city of Waukesha, or the municipality, or whatever you, or whatever the designation is there, doesn't fall within it, but the county does. So the the Great Lakes Basin intersects there, and there's this whole court like legal. Um, dispute over whether or not like a county like straddling along the sides of these lake basin which should be like a cities within that county should also be allowed to have this water diversion well in 2016 it was decided yes you know cities that do are within counties that do fall within the lake basin can get access to it and they can build pipelines and make use of the water there so because of that, that kind of just opened the geographical extent of where uh, companies or people or municipalities or like city, federal government, or even businesses could access the fresh water from the Great Lakes. So and it opened up a lot of things there. So correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. So kind of in a layman's terms, this means that a company can theoretically apply for a permit, pump water over this dividing line that separates mm. the Great Lake Basin from, I guess, the Mississippi River Basin. Mm. And so any water that's just discharged on the other side of the line doesn't get recuperated back into Lake Michigan, right? Oh, I'm not too sure about that. Because okay. uh, I'm fairly certain that within the city of Waukesha's plans, um, they created uh, part of what their plans were to create a pipeline that to go from the Great Lakes and incorporate that back in there. Because I think they, oh, uh, they're sure. still required to refresh whatever water that they're using um, mm -hmm. Yeah, to treat that. I think the whole idea there is they have um, uh, there was like a chemical in their water that it's hard to treat out of there. I think it was radium in the ground bed there. So, I mean, obviously you don't want radium in your water to serve to the people in your city. So I think that was the whole thing there. But 
um, the idea here is like that's that's how um, yeah that that's what's happening there, and that's why uh, you know it's interesting that Foxconn is now in an area where they were allowed to do that. So it might be just more of that going on there. So I did kind of want to open it back up to both of you guys um, because we're looking at this smaller scale plant where they're going to be manufacturing smaller screens and at a smaller scale, focusing more on that research and development. How is that going to change the landscape, either like environmentally or politically? Um, I don't think that that's really going to change the landscape politically. Um, uh, Marquette, uh, they didn't in the most recent law school poll. I don't believe they had a question about Foxconn, but in the October poll they did, and it's remained the support. Um, the public opinion on Foxconn has remained generally quite split but also somewhat consistent like people do believe generally that it will help um the milwaukee area uh but when asked will it help the area you are in um a larger percentage said no which does reflect that a lot of people in that most people in wisconsin do not live around the milwaukee area um uh, when and asked um, if the state was paying more than Foxconn was worth, uh, 42% of respondents said that they believe that. 40% thought that the plant would make back the money the state had spent on it. Uh, the rest were undecided. And you don't see these exact numbers, but the general trend of more people, of high, of a lot of people believing both um does persist generally i believe more people believe that it is a little bit too much money than that they'll then that the state will make it back perhaps comforting that the tax incentives are staggered so they only get them as they meet these certain benchmarks right uh, and uh, what I'll say environmentally is like, uh, again, I think precedent is the word here. So uh, in 2006, Peter Annan uh, is, was a writer that wrote about this book called The Great Lakes Water Wars. So it's the idea. It's like, are we ever going to come to? Are we going to come to a point where our freshwater resources are depleted so much that people look to the Great Lakes as a source of where we can you know, get get some of our water for whatever needs we may have, whether it be commercial or for like human health? Well, uh, corporations like Nestle and like Foxconn are interested in like put using that for their water bottles or for their LCD manufacturing process. So we have to wonder, is there a limit to where we look at things and say, oh, is this company allowed to do this? And who is and who isn't allowed to access this water? And how much do we want to look at that, you know, for um, economic benefits versus, um, you know, like what humans need to survive and which is what we're already at. So that's precedent. Uh, is, is it possible that um, there are, f- there are less, uh, gal- fewer, fewer gallons of water required in order to build those smaller screens? Um, I mean, I guess technological innovations are happening all the time, but at the moment, that's what the estimates are for this specific process that w- was being proposed at this plant. Right. So yeah, that's just this, I don't know, I guess locally uh, here for this one plant. All right. Kai Brito, Martin Rocketsoli, thank you guys so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And that will do it for this week's WSDM News Hour. You can join us next Sunday at 3 p.m. for more. If you miss us during the week, you can listen to our nightly newscasts on WSUM at 5 and 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday. I'm Will Keneally. And I'm Sam Beisman. Thank you for listening.